Well, good evening. It is always great to be here with you. It is always great to be able to worship with you and to speak with you. I pray God grant you grace and peace uh, during our time tonight. I love this time of year. This time of year, which is kind of unique for Floridians. We have two things that Floridians are passionate about starting right now. The first thing is football season. And in this part of Florida, that usually amounts to two schools. You're either a fan of a school in Gainesville that boasts of the largest butterfly collection in the United States. Or you're a fan of a school in Tallahassee nationally known for its clown college. <laughs> I'm from USF. I can hate on both. <laughs> Second is hurricane season. Yeah, that's right. This is the time of year where every Floridian becomes a meteorologist for three months. We can tell you about spaghetti models. We can tell you about the cone of uncertainty. We can tell you about wind speed, storm surge. We can tell you about all of those things. We know we have standing appointments with the National Hurricane Center at 5 a.m., 11 a.m., 5 p.m., and 11 p.m. when they update the maps. And if you want to be extra, you can also do 8 a.m., 2 p.m., 8 p.m., and 2 a.m. Yeah, I'm from Florida, so yes. Now, both of these passions have their advantages, right? Being able to be a part of something bigger than yourself that connects you to other people gives you a sense of purpose. It gives you a sense of belonging, something to look forward to. That's why people are so passionate about their football. And then being able to know what the weather has in store for you also helps you. Helps you know how to protect yourself. Helps you know how to protect your family. Helps you to know if you're going to brave I-95 trying to go north. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, also saw a storm coming. But it wasn't a storm of wind and rain. It was one of false doctrine and divisiveness. And he writes the Colossians to tell them to unite, to be a team, to be a team under Christ and face it. Turn with me to Colossians 2 is where we'll be. Now, while you're turning there, Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, was writing to uh, a church that was under attack by these ideologies that had been so common in other areas, the Gnostic ideologies, the Judaizers, which seemed to just plague the churches and irritate Paul to no end. And Paul didn't directly find, you know, plant the church in Colossae. It was planted probably through Epaphras, but it was planted through the church at Ephesus, which Paul spent three years at and loved so much. That's where he left Timothy. And so Paul felt a connection to them. He loved them so much. And so from 1,300 miles away in Rome, while he is chained in prison, he's inspired to write to the Colossian church. Now, if you want to start in chapter 1, what you'll see is Paul gets through his usual greeting and his usual encouragement, what he was encouraged about the report he heard from them. And then he starts writing a theme in the book in verse 15. And the theme in the book, it's such a great theme. Christ is enough. The sufficiency of Christ. This is the foundation for the rest of the book. But Paul then takes just a slight detour because he wants to add a personal touch in verse 24. He wants to talk to them about what his struggles were. He wants to talk to them about what his methods were, what he's been through, what his ministry, what his calling is. And so he spends from verse 24 through the end of the chapter to talk to them about that. And then we get to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And Paul gets to show his heart. He shows his heart for the church and he shows his heart for Christ. In fact, if you look at this verse, you'll see that it's a paragraph. And a fun little thing, and it's more apparent in the Greek, and go to our uh, seminary even if you have to audit it because it shows so many cool things that you hadn't seen before. 
But look with me as you see, verse 1 matches with verse 5. So it's almost like this sandwich. Verse 1, verse 5 go together. Then verse 2a matches with verse 4. And then right in the middle, right in the middle of this pivotal passage, because chapter 2, 1 through 5 is when Paul's going to pivot from telling them the foundation, telling them his struggles, and he's going to start telling them what he wants from them, telling them what they have to look out for, and instructing them. And right here is the pivot. And what do we see in verse 2b and 3? We see Christ. Right in the middle of this pivot point, we see that Paul, sandwiched all together, right in the middle, is Christ. This is the Christological high point of the book. Christ is at the center of the letter because Christ is at the center of Paul's heart. And so like Paul, I want to show you a bit of my heart tonight as a pastor. We'll talk about the struggle that pastors face. I want to show you why we struggle. Because storm clouds are circling Riverbend. They always have been. And they will continue. We too must mount a defense. Our defense, just like Colossae, is going to be unity. Unity as a church under the headship of Christ. As elders, our hearts desire that this church have unity in its pursuit of Christ. If you want to see my heart for this church, look at our struggle. What you're going to see is I struggle and I ache for the unity at Riverbend Church in the pursuit of Christ. Colossians 2, 1 through 5, we're going to see five aspects of a pastor's struggle for unity in the church. We're going to see the nature of the struggle. We're going to see the intent of the struggle. We're going to see the core of unity. We're going to see the necessity of unity and the encouragement and the struggle for unity. So if you're not already there, Colossians 2, 1 through 5, reads this. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you've given me this opportunity. I thank you for Riverbend. Lord, I pray that tonight we will see that Riverbend thrives when we are united under your headship and pursuing you. I pray that you will grant me the words that you want me to say. Give them ears to hear, Lord. May this be a time of worship. Maybe, may this be a time that glorifies you. In your son's name, amen. Starting in verse 1, Paul tells them, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Now, the word struggle has the idea, not necessarily of something that he can't accomplish, but more of the idea of an athlete training and competing and the hardship that goes with that. This is a striving. This is a drive. This is a pushing. This is someone who's driving and pushing themselves physically, mentally, and emotionally toward a goal. And we know Paul pushed himself constantly, don't we? Philippians 3.14, I press towards the mark of the high calling of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, he goes, he says to the Corinthians, he's like, don't you understand? It's like we're running a race, and there's only one who gets the prize, so run in a way to win the prize. He goes, that's why I beat my body, not as one who boxes the air. He does it so he may not be disqualified. He pushes himself. He pushes himself. He disciplines himself. He runs in such a way as if he were to win, if he, he wanted to win. There's a drive. He 
And yet there's a struggle that comes with that drive, isn't there? Paul alludes to the struggle he had in the previous paragraph. So go up to chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 24. The first thing we see is basically there is suffering. There is persecution involved. Paul says, now we rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. You know, being a leader means that you're out in front. And that means you're going to take the hits. Paul says here, part of the struggling is suffering for Christ. He says he filled up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, by no means is he saying that anything Christ did on the cross or anything that Christ did while he was on this earth was lacking. Right? The whole theme of this book is the sufficiency of Christ. So that, for him to then turn around and be like, well, he was lacking here, makes no sense. What he's trying to say is basically this. He's saying that the worst thing that they did to him was kill him because they didn't have him anymore to make him suffer. They hated him so much that when it was over, they were like, but we're not done. But what could they do? Jesus was dead. Well, Jesus told us what they do in John 15. Right? They hated me, they're going to hate you. Persecute me, they persecute you. Why? They hated Jesus so much, they're going to persecute his representatives. And as the most prominent face in the first century church, especially among the Gentiles, Paul was the prime target for persecution. And so, he had suffering, and we know he suffered. He talks about his sufferings. He was whipped. He was beaten with rods. He was thrown in prison. He was shipwrecked. He was starved. He was stoned. He was left out exposed. Lots of persecution. But look what he says. I rejoice. See, he's not wanting a pity party. He's saying, I rejoice in this. Why? Because he got to fulfill the Great Commission. Verse 25 through 29. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Fulfilling the Great Commission. Two things he was doing. One, preaching the whole counsel of God, right? Verse 25 and 26. He declared the whole counsel of God. We know Paul wanted to do this. If we look at Acts 20, in verse 25, he tells the elders, I did not shy away from telling you the whole counsel of God. One of the things we do as leaders is we teach the whole counsel of God. That's long hours of study, week in, week out. Two messages a week. You're done on Sunday, here comes Wednesday. You're done on Wednesday, here comes Sunday. And you know that you toil not just in the presence of you guys. It's bad enough if I mess up in front of you guys. But you are talking, you are teaching in the presence of Almighty God. The fruits of that is not just spoken before man, but are presented to God. Every message God is saying, did you handle my holy and perfect words accurately or shamefully? Did you accurately, did you cut it straight? Did you rightly divide the word of truth as 2 Timothy 2, 14 and 15 says? So we declare the whole counsel of God and there's the struggle of doing that. It's difficult. There's diagramming and Greek and, and reading lots of things and struggling with what this means. Struggling with a way to say it that makes sense. Verse 27, 28 then talks about him making mature disciples. Right? Back to Colossians 1, 27 through 29. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of glory, this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope 
of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that what? We may present everyone mature. Part of the struggle is going into a hostile world and preaching the gospel, but then part of the struggle is taking someone who's a new convert and walking with them and showing him how there's a different way now to live. How to flip their mind, how to radically change their thinking. This is the struggle to teach. This is the struggle we have in partners. This is the struggle we have in soul care, DTP, where we're getting in people's lives and we're wanting to help you sh- show you how to think and how to, to live your life according to the Bible. It takes time. It takes energy. But again, this isn't a pity party. Paul's doing this for a reason. Right? He doesn't do this because he wants them to feel sorry for him. He rejoices in this. And in the same, thing, in the same way, we joyfully take on these tasks because the love of Christ in our life The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us on those long hours. And even more than just the love of Christ, look at verse 29 in in Colossians 1. It's the power of God that works through us. We don't do this on our own. We don't have it. We don't have enough energy. We don't have enough power to change people's minds and their hearts. Sure, we can do psychological tricks, We can do persuasion. We can make you feel guilty. We can do all sorts of things, but that doesn't change your heart. It accomplishes nothing. As Pastor Scott would say, it packs your bags to hell. Because you think up here you're going to heaven, but your heart is not changed. It's easy to make someone think a one-time mental or emotional scent equates to, to salvation. It's hard for them to get to true repentance sometimes. It's hard for them to get to surrendering to Christ their life as their Lord and Savior. But this is the struggle. This is the struggle that Paul had, and he does it because he cares for them. Go back to chapter 2 and look what he says. I have for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. So this struggle... This struggle is for a Colossi church that he's probably not seen most of their members. Sure, some of them maybe started in Ephesus and went to Colossians and maybe he knew them. But then from Colossae, the church was also found in Laodicea, so he probably knew less of them. He says, but I still care for you. I still love you. I still rejoice that I get to do this. The heart of a pastor is for all the people. I've not met many of you face to face. I've not had great conversations in the sense of the length of time with many of you. It's the same thing. When you have a church of 600 people, it's hard. There's nine of us. And yet we still care for you. We still see your name. And we pray for you in our meetings. There's still people who are missionaries that I've not met that we still see their faces on the board and we still see their names and we still pray for them. We still feel a connection to them. We even just had an instance where somebody wasn't able to be there in another state. They couldn't be. They were a part of this church, but they couldn't. And yet we still prayed for them. We still talked to them. We still cared for him. The heart of a pastor is for anyone who God gives to them. We love and struggle for those people. But why? Am I just doing this to say, you know, hey, life is hard, feel bad for me, or or admire me? No. I'm saying this for the same reason Paul's saying it. He's saying it not to brag, but he says, I want you to know how hard I push because I want you to know how important you are and how important this next statement's going to be. Paul's about to break into the main apologetic part of his letter of combating heresy to Gnosticism and Judaism. And so he's going to talk about his struggle is so much so because he's after their hearts. Right? What does he say? That their hearts may be encouraged. 
See, this is the intent of the struggle, that their hearts may be encouraged. The purpose of a struggle is that he can get to the church's heart. And that's the purpose of any, any pastor, right? I'm not here for the money. I'm not here for the fame. I'm not here for perks. I'm here for your heart. We're after your hearts. I want to speak to the inner life. I want to speak to the center of your personality. I want to speak to where the will and emotion and thoughts and affections originate. I want to be in that place and I want to pursue that place where feeling and faith, words and actions start. I want to shine the light of gospel hope there. I want to saturate that part of your life with the word of God. That's why we struggle. We're after your heart. I'm after your heart. And it's such a delicate thing, right, to be after someone's heart, right? That's the innermost part of them. That would be where they're most vulnerable. So when Paul gets a hold of their heart, what does he want to do? He wants to encourage them. Now, this isn't just the encouragement of feelings only. This is the encouragement of comfort and strengthening the whole self, right? He's after the innermost part of himself, so he's going to encourage everything. That's what he wants. He wants to encourage their hearts. He wants to give them encouragement that touches the deepest parts of their being, affecting every aspect. Why work so hard for just an emotional or superficial thing? Who cares about that? Why would you go through so much just to get some people to clap for you or to smile? He wants to encourage the very core of their life, the very core of their being with everything that he has, all the tools, all the abilities, in order that they may go out and be bold for Christ. This is the commander giving his troops a lifetime's wealth of knowledge and training and motivating him. But he doesn't say individually, look, what does he say? That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together. And there we have. He wants to encourage them through their unity. He wants to encourage their heart both individually, but then he says it's going to happen because... They're knit together with others in the church. This is a call for unity. Beyond just the heart of the individual, Paul states he wants to encourage their heart. He wants to encourage it through unity. The means or the circumstances that's going to cause them to be encouraged is going to be when they're unified. Think about it. When you have a bunch of young guys and they're about to go into battle, at that time they'll talk about they don't think of necessarily everyone at home. They don't think of, you know, country and all of this. What do they think about? The guy next to him. The guy next to me. And so what does a commander, a good commander do? He unifies them. He makes them a cohesive unit because that's going to be a strong unit. So if we want to be encouraged and if we're going to face the storm, we need to be unified. If we're going to encourage each other, we need to be unified. The Bible frequently talks about believers as individuals, a part of a larger cohesive unit. Turn to 1 Peter 2.5. First Peter's 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the stones are individual, but individually they don't do much. But together, what do they do? They're being built up as a spiritual house. Ephesians 2.19 says, we are saints in the household of God. We are saints in the household of God. We're family. We're in the household of God. We're individuals, but we're part of a greater unit. This spiritual unity is strengthened through the local church, which is why it is important that the local church gather together. Go to Hebrews 10. This will be a passage that we go to a couple of times, but I think it's so important 
23 through 25, Paul's, or, sorry, the writer of the Hebrews says here, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day is drawing near. I want you to look at this. Look at in verse 23 how he connects holding fast to the confession with our hope of our hope, love and good deeds to gathering of the local church. You want to be unwavering in your hope in Christ? Be involved in the local church. Be involved in Riverbend. Do you want to be loved? Be involved in the local church. Do you want to be encouraged to live rightly before God? Be involved in the local church. Because just as unity is accomplished through the interconnectedness of individuals, so too is Paul going to encourage the church through encouraging both the individual and through the unity of the body. As pastor, I know that we are strong when we are individually strong, and yet we are so much stronger when we are together than even the summation of our strengths individually. We're stronger as a whole. So we seek to encourage you individually, but we seek to maintain a cohesion because we are stronger together. Riverbend as a community is stronger together, and thus we seek to see Riverbend as a community. And we seek the unity of the believers of Riverbend for a thriving community. But what's at the core of this unity? Well, back to Colossians. Three things, almost like three strands that are woven to knit hearts together. Three things that we'll see at the core of unity. The first thing we're going to see is love, right? Being knit together in love. Love is one of the most important and powerful means we have to be united as a group. Paul knows the importance of love as it as it deals with unity. Go to Philippians 2. This is such a great such a great definition. Philippians 2, 1 and 2. Look at this. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Here we go. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Is that not a great definition of unity? Same mind, same love, in full accord, one mind. Great definition. When we're not united, we're not walking in love. Love should saturate every action that we accomplish. 1 Corinthians 16, let all that you do be done in love. The preeminent character trait that we need to have then is love. Is love. Back to Colossians. Just flip down to chapter 3, verse 14. Paul's going to tell them how we should treat everyone. He just gets done saying, listen... Under Christ, these distinctions, these artificial distinctions that have happened are not there. In the church, you're treating everyone as an image bearer of God, as a brother and sister in Christ, because there's a greater reality. It's not that you lose your individual identity, but there's a greater reality in the church, a greater relationship. And so starting in verse 12, he tells you to put all of these things on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. And above all, in verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see how he connects that here? Look what he's doing in, in chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2 in our, verse, in our passage where he says, their hearts may be encouraged being knit together, right? Being bound in love. But... So many people talk about love, but then they don't define it. It can be so frustrating. Okay, I know I need to love, but what is love? 
because the world has its definition, and it's awful. Some other churches have definitions. It's equally as awful. What is love? Well, love has several meanings, and we have to be careful how we get to the meaning of what Paul means. Now, the word here that we have is agape, but clearly in the word of God, agape love is not just reserved for that unconditional type of love that we try, tend to elevate that only like Christians can have for each other. In fact, sometimes it's used to describe the love of evil men. But in this context, in the New Testament, because it is of love, it is the, the word here is actually a, a noun that's a big deal because in the New Testament and in Pauline writings, when you have this in the form of a noun, what it means, and usually the context is referring to the love of God. When this word is used as a noun, usually what it's a reference to, again, the love of God. What does that mean? So when we say we need to be united in love, we're saying that we need to be united by the love of God, the love that God has for us. The same love that comes from God is the love that we should have for other people. This is not a superficial love. This is not an emotional love. This is the love that God has for us. This is the love that includes all many things. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Whom the Lord loves, he puts through trials so that you can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when we say we want Riverbend to be a church that is characterized by love, what we're saying is at the very core of every member, and thus the whole body of Riverbend, we want that you to show the love of God. Right? 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. He is the source of love. He is the perfection of love. And everyone that loves is known of God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So let us love one another. You see, Paul just got done showing that Christ is the point and center of all creation. In Colossians 1, 15 through 17. And then Paul showed how Christ is the head of the church in verse 17 through 20. Therefore, as God's going to work all things for his glory... Love is going to do, bring someone to glorify God. It's going to be actions and words and things that we do that help people glorify God. Because when God loves us, he works everything for his glory. That's love. When we love someone, we do those things which cause them to glorify God. So if you want to know if something is loving, there's a test. Are you loving them as God loves them? And are you doing something that brings them to glorify God? If the answer is no, you're not loving them. When you discipline your children, are you disciplining them the way God would discipline? And are you disciplining them in a way that would eventually bring them to glorify God in their behavior? Or are you just doing it because they annoyed you? When you talk to your spouse, do you talk to them in a way that helps them bring glory to God? When you talk to the world, are you talking to them in a way that glorifies God? When you talk politics, are you talking to people in a way that helps them glorify God? When you confront someone with sin, are you talking to them in a way and doing it for the purpose that they glorify God? And that's why we do things, right? We meet physical needs of people with joy because God promised to meet their physical needs and it helps them glorify God, right? Matthew 6, 32-33, he knows what we need. He knows what we need. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things he'll add to you. We also meet their spiritual needs because God has promised to complete the good work that he has begun. He who began a good work with you will complete it. And so we here do those things which help that sanctification process because that, even though we do it in the spirit of God, because we can't do it ourselves, but that is what is loving. 
Now we could spend weeks on this, looking at all the way God loves us and then all the ways that, that how that translates to how we could love other people. But the point here is to motivate the church to unite themselves by means of the never-ending pursuit of loving others like God does. Are we known for that here? Do we love the body of Riverbend like God loves Riverbend? Do we love the individual members of Riverbend like God loves each and every one of our members? Are we known for our love? Second thing here is the wealth of understanding. Back to chapter 2, we see this, right? After we're together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. The second advantage of being united is that we are blessed with the riches of full assurance that come from understanding. Now, Paul previously prayed this in Colossians 1. So flip up to uh, chapter 1, verse 9, and he says here, So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul had previously prayed that they would have knowledge of his will and spiritual understanding. Now, this is the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of scripture that is then understood to the degree of being able to be applied. That's the difference between just knowledge and understanding. You know it well enough to apply it to the real world. That's what wisdom is, applied knowledge. Paul wanted this understanding to lead them to walk in a manner worthy of their Lord, to bear good fruit, and then to increase the knowledge they had. So it's going to stir them on. I got this much knowledge, and, and it's great. It makes me even hungrier for more. Notice that this is spiritual wisdom and not just facts, right? It's learning how to apply knowledge. And this wisdom only comes through the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit and dwelling Christians. The Holy Spirit gives the true Christian a spiritual wisdom that allows them to apply the knowledge of the Bible to their everyday decisions. It allows them to walk in a manner that is worthy of God. It bears the fruit of the what? Fruit of the Spirit. That's fruit indicative that the root is what? The Holy Spirit. So as we learn and understand the truth of Scripture, we then walk in a manner that is worthy of God and bears the fruit of the Spirit. And what does that do? That gives us the assurance of our salvation. And it leads to a wealth of joy and hope and peace in our lives. And when we at Riverbend are working hard individually to gain the knowledge of Scripture to the point of understanding, and then through the power of the Holy Spirit, we apply that knowledge to everyday, our everyday walk, we can see the fruits of the Spirit. And we can be encouraged that we are healthy, both as individuals and as a church. But we need the body to do this. We need the church because the preaching of the word is going to be the primary way that we receive this knowledge. That's why we preach in season and out of season. We don't know what the season is, but we know you're either in it or you're out of it, and you're preaching in both. And then what do we do? Well, for those who want more, we have BFGs. We have so many great BFG teachers, so many great discussions in BFGs. Then we have things like partners, soul care, DTP. We even have a Bible college and a theological seminary. The more you get involved, the more connected you will be to the knowledge and understanding that leads to the riches of full assurance. I've never heard somebody go, well, that was lousy. I wish I'd never done that. Most of the time, what we hear is, I wish I'd done that sooner. I don't know why I waited so long. The more you use these resources, the more spiritual understanding you will get. The local church is how the primary way that you're going to receive this stuff. And it will be granted to you so you know you're walking in a manner pleasing to God. Now there's another aspect to this. 
Because the church not only offers us information, but then the church is also the one that's going to look at our lives, right? We need the unity of the church in order to have the full assurance because the church will be able to see our lives through different perspectives and see the weaknesses of those different individuals, right? We go back to Hebrews, and what do we see? When we go back to Hebrews 10, verse 23, what we see again there is we're holding fast to this confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So we're looking at other people and going, how can I stir this person up to love more? How can I stir this person up to have more good works? How can I motivate? How can I encourage? Every person I see, how can I encourage you to love more? How can I encourage you to more good works? Consider how to do that. That's why we gather together. And when one of us gets off, we have a body of believers that's like, hey, brother, you're not heading down the right road. You need to stop. So we see that connection. We see the connection of gathering together with stimulating to love and good works. That gives us the full assurance that we are pleasing to God. Do you want that encouragement? It's found in your local church. And then you can see how in in Hebrews how that pops right back up to holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Because God is faithful. God uses the local church to bless us with the riches of hope and joy and peace and love. And then the third thing, the third core of unity is the knowledge of God's mystery. And here we are. Right in the middle of the sandwich now. And here's Christ. The knowledge of God's mystery. This knowledge and understanding is not just so we can say we're the smartest or that we're some lofty intellectual church. No, what is he saying? He gets to the very core of the matter. And what does he say? He says, knit together in love to reach all riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We don't do it because we want some lofty understanding. We do it because we want to get closer to Christ. That's what we want. That's the core of this paragraph. That's the core of this pivot right here. Knowledge that we gain leads us closer to understanding the mystery of God, which is Christ. We don't seek to make you puffed up with knowledge. We don't just want to add all these classes on you so you're some some walking encyclopedia. We want you to get closer to Christ. See, Paul is talking to a church that is under attack by Gnostic influence. This influence was obsessed with finding secret knowledge that somehow elevated, they thought. They, They thought it would elevate them closer to God above others. So Paul takes this concept, flips it on his head, and if you go to chapter 21, verse 24... Through 27, he talks about this mystery, right? 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Throughout the Old Testament, the writers each had glimpses of what the gospel would be, but nobody had the full picture of the gospel. Nobody knew how the seed of a woman was going to crush the head of a snake. Nobody knew how Abraham's seed was going to amount more than the stars or the sands. Nobody knew how David's throne was going to last forever, especially because Israel was in captivity. And then a manger in Bethlehem, God gave him the answer was Christ. Christ is the God-man. He's the fulfillment of these prophecies. Remember, the point of Colossians is the sufficiency of Christ. So everything was answered in Jesus. So Paul says, oh, you want to know knowledge, you want to know secrets, how to get closer to God? I'll tell you what it is. It's Christ. It's Christ. 
not only is Christ the, an the answer to the greatest mystery of all times, but he is also the one to which everything else is answered. Right? What does it say there? Verse 4. I'm sorry. Um, verse 3. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to know how to live your life? It's in Christ. Know who Christ is. Now remember that when he said that the Holy Spirit gives the Christian a spiritual wisdom that allows them to apply the knowledge of the Bible to everyday life, right? He said the Holy Spirit will do that. Well, guess what? Without Christ, there's no indwelling Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no wisdom. Without wisdom, there's no life in us. Without life, we are dead in our sins. We are fools that think we're wise. Romans 1, right? Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's who we are without Christ. Jesus is the source of all knowledge and wisdom. We know nothing as humans unless Christ decides to reveal it to us. We have no ability to attain knowledge apart from God. That's why we say discover. It was covered. Christ already knew it. And it was discovered, so we go, oh, look at that. Nuclear physics, wonderful. This is why the Bible is the preeminent source of knowledge in the Word, because it's the, re it's the pure, revealed words of God. And this is why we pursue excellence in knowing how to interpret and apply the Bible, because it is the foundation of every other knowledge we have. The Bible may not teach you how to be a plumber, but it'll teach you how to be a plumber that glorifies God. And that's so much more important. It's infinitely more important because it's eternally more important. We have no wisdom as humans unless God reveals to us how we use it. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 is what do you have that you have not been given? And if why, if you've been given it, you act like you had it. Why? Why do you boast in it? We have nothing without God. We have no knowledge without God. We have no ability to learn without God. We have no breath without God. We have no ability to keep the, the molecules in our body together without God. Jesus is not only the source of knowledge, but he is also the point of knowledge. Go back up to verse 16 of chapter 1, and we'll see that. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. He's the point. Do you recognize that Jesus is the source of knowledge and the point of knowledge? Math teaches us about Christ. You want to see the beauty of God? Get Jason Lyle's book on fractals. Show you how mathematical equations create art. Science teaches us about Christ. Art teaches us about Christ. Music teaches us about Christ. History teaches us about Christ. Sports teaches us about Christ. The point of everything is to glorify and magnify Christ. And so, do we gain knowledge in this church for the purpose of being closer to Christ? We see the point of BFG is to get you closer to Christ. The point of soul care is to get you closer to Christ. The point of DTP is to get you closer to Christ. The point of Christ Bible Theological Seminary and Bible College is to get you closer to Christ. That's why we put Christ in the name, in case there was a question. How much of Christ do you want to know? That's the question. How close do you want to get to Christ? What knowledge are we putting in our heads and why are we putting it there? We only have a brief amount of time on this earth. How much of it is spent going, getting to know Christ? When you attain knowledge, what is the purpose? What are you doing it for? When you're at your job and you get new knowledge, why do you do it? Are you doing it to glorify Christ? Learn how to do that on DTP1, men. That's what we talk about, how to be a godly man at work. Will we at Riverbend be known as a church that seeks to know Christ? Or will we be a church that is just filled with knowledge? I hope that we will be a church filled with individuals to seek to know Christ in every pursuit that we endeavor. And to glorify him in every pursuit. 
Will Riverbend be known as a church that pursues excellence in knowing Christ in his word? Will Riverbend be a church that maintains its unity as it pursues Christ? Because there's a reason, and Paul talks about that too. There's a necessity for this, right? Verse 4, I say this in order that no one delude you with plausible arguments. There was a divisive force, a doctrine of demons that was coming for the church in Colossae. Colossians 2.8 will describe this philosophy as empty deceit according to human tradition. If you look, see to it, no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. James 3 is going to call this the wisdom of the world, which says it's not of this earth. It's, I'm sorry, it's of this earth, not of heaven. It only sees the natural, not the supernatural. And it is of demons, not of God. And furthermore, this type of wisdom is the type of wisdom that produces jealousy and selfish ambition and disorder. And if you continue in that passage in James down to 4.1, he's going to say, what is the cause of wars? It's jealousy. You want what you can't have. It becomes a source of quarrels and jealousy. Self-ambition will kill a church. A person that rather rule in hell than serve in heaven is a person that will ruin a church. Yes, pursuing excellence is a great thing. And it's something we should seek to attain. But we have to pursue excellence in God's way, in God's timing, and for God's glory. When we start to try and gain power through our means or on our timeline or for our recognition, we become divisive in the church. And divisiveness is a cancer. So much so that in Titus 3... Paul gives him the express lane when church discipline. He says, warn him twice and he's out. Warn a divisive man twice and he's out. Titus 3.10. Paul knows a church that seeks after the wisdom of man becomes a divided church. And a divided church is an ineffective church, becomes a dead church. And today we have the very same forces coming after Riverbend. From the outside, right, We have these ideologies like critical theory that are designed to destroy a church. They're exactly what Paul's saying here when he says, let no one delude you. These theories are deluding churches into thinking this is what they should do, and it's causing divisions because they're plausible arguments. They sound good. They sound maybe scientific. We have external forces doing that. They they seek our vulnerable They seek our children, but they aren't the biggest threat. The biggest threat will always come from within the body. In talking to the Ephesian elders, Paul says that wolves will come from among you. Trying to carry people away. And since the church of Colossae was started from people who were at at Ephesus, they would have known of this warning. It's so easy for us to think that somehow we have some greater knowledge in how to run a church. We can second-guess leadership. We can think we have the answers. It's easy to start listening to other things that replace the Bible. Maybe people talk about some scientific study they did or pop psychology. Maybe some professional church growth consultants that more effectively run the church. They seem to make good arguments. It's easy to think, yeah, the Bible's a good starting point, but what are we going to do when we get deep into it? How are we going to attract more people? How are we going to make our church more attractive to non-believers? How are we going to get better programs, better methods, based on our research? Maybe we think we have a better way. Maybe we think we can make the church more holy, and so we go off on crusades. Just like in Colossians 2.16. When Colossians 2.16, he talks about how people are judging them. Therefore, let no one pass judgment in the questions of food and drink, festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. Maybe we start passing judgment on what people should drink or what should they wear or what should they watch or what should they listen to or how they should celebrate something, who they should vote for. And all the while, we neglect the pursuit of Christ with the rest of the body. We need the church to protect us from these things. We need good, sound knowledge 
We need good, sound Christians to bring us aside and say, hey, brother, you're not doing this right. You're being divisive. It could even be something that's good to pursue, but if it destroys unity in the church, it's not. It may sound good. It may sound plausible. The church is a unifying force that marches against the gates of hell. So when you have a church that is filled with people that have the riches of assurance and understanding and the knowledge of Christ, and then they wrap it in love, you have an impenetrable defense against the false doctrines that seek to divide the church. You see, love without knowledge is naivety, and that will get fooled. Knowledge without love puffs up. Lastly, the encouragement. Paul says here in verse 5, Though I'm absent, yet I'm with you, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul wasn't there, but he reminds them that this unity is greater than what can be achieved by physical means. Though Paul is in prison and cannot be with the church, he is still connected to and encouraged by the church because they're connected by the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is God. And therefore, though he indwells each of us individually, he's also omnipresent. And so he becomes the connection of the church. This omnipresent connects us with each person who is also indwelled. God is the source of our unity. Thus, Paul can say that though he's not physically there and 1,300 miles away in chains, because they have the same spirit and because they pursue the same, they pursue the same Christ, they are supernaturally connected by God. So when the church is healthy and pursuing Christ, it's an encouragement even to those who cannot be physically there. Now, we just got done saying you need to be involved in the local church. And Paul's not saying that just because we're connected, we can all be apart and never come together. I guarantee you that if Paul was able to, he would be right there. But he is saying, I'm 1,300 miles away in chains, and I'm encouraged because you're standing fast. Your order and firmness echoes what some would say in a military as discipline and strength. They see a strong front in their unity. And it's a front that follows the discipline of God's word. What Paul is just saying here, without getting too far into a militaristic picture, is he's encouraged and rejoiced at the strong spiritual state of their church. You see, nothing encourages a pastor or leader more than when we see a church that we have struggled for and that we care so much for that is in a strong spiritual state. You want to encourage us? Be a strong church. That's what encourages us. We love to sit in elders' meetings and praying for people and saying, they're doing so well, they're running so well, I'll take a hundred of them. And we say that about so many of you. It's so encouraging. We as pastors are encouraged when we see a hunger to know Christ and a drive to pursue Christ that leads to unity. When Riverbend Church is spiritually strong, not only will it encourage your heart, but causes us to rejoice. So you want to know my heart? Look no further than our struggle. I desire nothing more than a church that is unified in love, rich in this understanding of and the knowledge of Christ, and a force for God. Unity is a struggle. It's an everyday struggle. It's an everyday decision, everyday dying to yourself and pursuing Christ. Are you with us in this struggle? Do you want that for you? Do you want that for Riverbend? Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the center of everything. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the strength of it. Lord, I, can, I pray that we will excel still more. May we be compelled by your love because you died for us. May we be compelled to live for you, to drive hard, to struggle. We thank you for who you are. I thank you for this church. Bless them now. Give them peace. Give them hope. Give them joy. 
your son's name. Amen.